This week on Q&A, columnist and political commentator Patrick Buchanan. He served as a speechwriter and senior advisor to President Nixon and joins us to discuss his book, Nixon's White House Wars, The Battles That Made and Broke a President and Divided America Forever. Pat Buchanan, in the acknowledgments of your new book, on your time with Richard Nixon, you write, this memoir and history of the Nixon presidency is surely among the last to be written by a confidant who served in the White House from its first to its final days over four decades ago. How many others are left? I'm sure there's some of the young men around Nixon, what we were called back in those days, like Dwight Chapin and others, who haven't written memoirs yet, but I'm not sure they're going to. But I do think in terms of a written memoir, this is, uh, Brian, this is probably the last of someone who was right there and knew it at, uh, and knew it from the beginning. What did you put in this book that you had never talked about before? Well, I put in the origins of the Agnew speech, uh, my memos on that. There's a number of memos in there that I went to my files and got out that I've never published before, a great number of them. And uh, there's a description of how I... Uh, I almost defected on the China trip. I was so unhappy with it. And uh, there's also the uh, the end the end of it, you know, where you put in that quote by John Osborne, and that uh, looked so. He said he saw had seen Shelley and me when first day, the inauguration day in '69, looking up at the portico, and and then he had seen how it had all ended. He was an old liberal curmudgeon, and he said it almost breaks your heart. So there's, all of this is fresh and new, almost all of it. The memoranda, have, most of the memoranda have never been published. Others have gotten parts of them. But what that's, what that's about is really what it was like as a young conservative in the Nixon White House trying to do battle for your beliefs and the opposition you faced and the transition the party was undergoing. And, and frankly, how Nixon sort of operated on the, held the whole thing together until the Watergate collapsed it. You mentioned Spiro Agnew and the Des Moines speech. We've got a clip of it. Before we go there, what was it? What role did it play? What led up to it? Here's what happened. Nixon, uh, in the end of his first year, toward the end of his first year, the massive demonstrations, the new mobilization and the moratorium were being held on the monument grounds. And it was quite clear Time and Newsweek were saying Richard Nixon's presidency is in danger of being broken. David Broder, a liberal columnist, wrote that, The Breaking of the President. And I wrote the president a memo saying, you've got to stand up and we're going to have to explain to the country why we have to keep those guys, those kids over there fighting and dying in Vietnam. And Nixon gave his famous Great Silent Majority speech on November 3rd, 1969. It was a smashing triumph. And 70% uh, of the country backed him and stood with him. But that night, after the speech finished, the networks had proceeded to trash it. The three major networks, and most Americans got their news about the country and about the president and the world from these three networks. And Nixon was angry, and Haldeman told me to write letters and telegrams and things. And I said, this is the time, really, to take on the networks directly, openly, and at a high level. The way to do it is a speech by the vice president of the United States, which I will write. And it came back, a memo, which is photograph of it, is in that book where Haldeman wrote back, P has seen, go ahead. That means the President of the United States has seen your memo, 
go ahead and start writing that speech. And I wrote it for about three or four days. I was in touch with the vice president. And I went through three drafts, which is not a great number. And I was called over to the Oval Office. And there sat the president with his glasses on, which he never wore, coat and tie, sitting there at the desk, editing my words and writing in phrases into this Agnew speech. And then he murmured, and I was listening, and he murmured, this will tear the scab off those bastards. And I broke out laughing, and he broke out laughing, and Agnew went out to deliver that speech in Des Moines at some meeting gathering, a Midwest conference in Des Moines. And I got word in the, in the White House or in the EOB where I worked that ABC was going to go live with it. And I was nervous, so I went up to the university club and went swimming. And I got they called me out from the pool, and they said, Pat, NBC and CBS are going live with it. And I said to myself, this is either going to be a great success or a career ender. And Agnew delivered that speech on the networks, and the reaction was sensational. Nationwide, telegrams, letters. And what we realize is the whole country stood with us in its sentiment about the networks and about television. And then that night, if you can believe it, I drove out to Andrews Air Force Base at about 3 a.m. and got aboard Air Force Two. Agnew had invited me to ride with him down to um, down to Cape Canaveral. And he comes on the plane late, and he comes over to me and says, gangbusters. <laughs> and it was just a phenomenal moment. And that moment, I think, Nixon's great silent majority speech, Agnew's attack on the networks at Des Moines, and the follow-up attack on the Washington Post and New York Times in Montgomery, Alabama, which I wrote with the vice president. That, I think, was re the real making of the president. Not 1968 so much, but the real making of the president. If you can believe it, Brian, at the end of that year, Richard Nixon was at 68% approval and 19% disapproval. <laughs> Astonishing. Here was a fellow who seven years before was the biggest loser in American politics after he'd lost the governorship of California to Pat Brown. Let's see a little bit of that speech of Ted Agnews, the former vice president, November 13th, 1969 in Des Moines. Now, every American has a right to disagree with the president of the United States and to express publicly that disagreement. But the President of the United States has a right to communicate directly with the people who elected him. And the, and the people of this country have the right to make up their own minds and form their own opinions about a presidential address without having the President's words and thoughts characterized through the prejudices of hostile critics before they can even be digested. Do I remember that that happened right around dinner hour or 6 or 7 at night? I, it was around 7 or 7.30, I believe, at night, maybe 7 o'clock at night. That's correct. And what Agnew is talking about there is the fundamental point, and it exists today, is that the President of the United States, in those days, a number of people had custody of how and what would be seen of the President of the United States and how it would be presented because they controlled all three networks. About, a, I would say, 12 people would make this decision. And so, they, in effect, the, the direct communication between President and the people, they were standing right in the middle of it. They had the lens. They would present, present it as they saw fit in what excerpts they saw fit. 
and you almost we felt we almost couldn't live with this and and the president was constantly on the phone and things and calling for letters to the editors and telegrams i said you know this is nonsense I mean, you were seen by 50 million people. The network fellows commenting on it were seen by 50 million people. And, you know, we can't turn this around with letters to the editor. And so we elevated that issue. And the issue exists to this day. And I think that was the, uh, that was the first strike. Why did they decide at the time to carry it live? Because they, they would never do this in those days. Well, I think because, well, we put in phrases at the end, whether what I say tonight is heard by the American people doesn't depend on you or doesn't depend on me. They decide what you hear and don't hear. And that was exactly right, and it was a challenge. Also, I think, in, as I recall in there, we had a quote from Frank Reynolds of ABC. He had written this horrible thing, or said this horrible thing on television during the campaign of 68, which just astonished me, saying Nixon's retaining his ability to hit his people with a meat action or Nixon's controlling himself and so we had quotes and things like that which were a challenge and defiance of them and in effect you know goaded them into putting it out there I think they put it on the air because they thought that Agnew who was being trashed as sort of uh, you know an individual uh, a brutish individual who had no sensitivity and didn't understand the First Amendment, that they thought that the public would say, my goodness, these Nixon people want to censor the news and, and restrict the First Amendment. But the American people loved it. It was the, uh, it was the real making of Vice President Agnew, who before that, as you know, in 1968, had been regarded by the press as something of a buffoon. But you write, you write a lot about uh, <clears throat> Spiro Agnew in the book. What impact did it have on you when you found out that he was taking cash money and envelopes in the old well, executive you know, office I went building? up to the EOB. He had a press conference at room 450 in the EOB. And there were these reports and rumors that uh, he was being investigated by George Bell, who was a friend of mine over in Baltimore, the U.S. attorney. And I went up and watched Agnew defy, make a defiant statement and have the press at 450. And then Ziegler, Ron Ziegler, the press secretary, seemed to undercut Agnew. So I called Al Haig. I said, Al, what is going on? Why are we not standing by the vice president? He said, come on over, Pat. And I went into his office, the, uh, the, the, the chief of staff of the corner office at Haldeman had, and he said, we've got him taking envelopes in the basement. And I was shattered by this. And uh, Agnew I, was a good friend of mine. I traveled with him in 70. I liked him. We were buddies. He had real courage. Uh, and he was just a terrific fellow. You had a lot of fun with him, and Bryce Harlow, you could play tricks on the guy, and he really enjoyed it. And I think there's, I was really agonized and disappointed with that, and uh, I remember uh, I remember writing him a note the day he resigned. Did you ever talk to him after that? I didn't talk about what happened and why. Uh, I assumed they had the goods on him when he played no low contender, eh? But I'll tell you, we used to over in John Damgard, who was an aide, used to, whenever Agnew came to town once every year or two, uh, he would call a number of Agnew's close friends and a quiet meeting. Bryce Harlow would be in there and and the folks from Agnew's shop, Good Earl and Buchanan, and everybody would have a couple of drinks and talk <laughs> talk about the great days. He was fun to travel with, I'll tell you. There are a lot of different things you touch on, and I'm going to jump around, but before we do that, I want to ask you to do something that I don't think I've ever heard you do. I want you to talk about your brothers and sisters, because there are eight of them. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you mentioned a couple. You mentioned Henry in here. You mentioned Crick in here. Uh, and we know Bay Buchanan. But how old are they? How many of them are still alive? Mm -hmm. Where do you fit in the family? And what do they do? Well, uh, my two oldest brothers, Bill and uh, Bill died when he was about 45, and so my brother Hank died a couple of years ago. So I'm the oldest now of nine, and my brother Crick, the one who served in Vietnam, uh, he's got six kids, and he's a dentist, and he's living out in, uh, in Maryland, Montgomery County. Below him is uh, in age is my sister Kathleen, uh, who worked for Bill Crystal for a while and then worked up in the vice president shop, I believe, Vice President Quayle. And uh, she's got uh, she's got three kids now and has lost a kid and she's uh, uh, and and then below her is my brother Jack John Edward Buchanan who's a coach's basketball and who's been an accountant and is a corporate business executive out in in I think he's out in Kensington now lives still in Kensington Maryland right out here Kensington Maryland yeah and then there's Bay who's a <laughs> General MacArthur who ran my campaign who's <laughs> a tough customer she you know incidentally uh, she really was high on Romney and she became a Mormon she's very high on Romney in 1912 or excuse me 2012 and when that was over, I think she was disillusioned by it and got out of politics and is now in real estate and doing very, very well. Where does she live She now? lives out in Oakton, Oakton, Virginia, which is a little beyond Tyson's Corner. And then there's my brother, Brian, who went down to Bedford once he got out of uh, medical school. He's a doctor down in Bedford, Bedford, Virginia, which is down near between Roanoke, Lynchburg, and the, sort of up in the hills there. It's got that famous World War II memorial, you know, where... All those guys from Bedford coming ashore on Omaha Beach were just wiped out. And uh, then there's my brother Tom, who's a managing partner at Winston Strawn. He's a lawyer. He lives on Gerald Ford Drive over in, uh, right near Episcopal High School where Johnny McCain went to school. So he's doing extremely well, and so that's where they are and what they're doing. But we all grew up in D.C., you know, I spent D. I was in D.C. from I was born in D.C. My mother used to work as a nurse at Providence Hospital, at the old Providence Hospital, and born and raised up in Blessed Sacrament Parish, the D.C. side of they call it D, Chevy Chase D.C. And I uh, went to school at Blessed Sacrament, nuns only, Gonzaga High School, right up the street. Buchanan Family Field is the name of the football field, and went to Georgetown uh, on the five-year plan. And I remember you getting kicked out of Georgetown. That's, <laughs> I told you, I, I've got the story in the book. When I got aboard the plane with Agnew, uh, and somebody got aboard after me, and I looked over, and it was Father Joseph Selinger, the head of Loyola College or University at the time, and he looked at me, and there was instant recognition because Joe, Father Joe Selinger had expelled me from Georgetown University after an altercation with the police when I was a senior in October of 1959. And this was dug up by Jack Anderson's deputy, Britt Hume, when I was in the White House writing speeches about how these kids, if we got to crack down on student disorders. And Britt Hume called me up and says, Pat, I want to read you something here. It says that you're arrested and this is what you're charged with. You're out on $2,000 bond and all of this. What do you have to say for yourself and uh, fight with the police? I said, well, um, Britt, I was, I was ahead on points until they brought out the sticks. <laughs> it's one of my better lines <laughs> when you have no defense. <laughs> Mom and Dad, were, what were they like? Well, my father was very much uh, autocrat, very autocratic. He was a, 
as I mentioned in, right from the beginning, an earlier book, his three political heroes were Joe McCarthy, General MacArthur, and General Francisco Franco of Spain, the Catholic who finished off the communists in Spain. He was a very devout Catholic. Uh, he was he went to Gonzaga before I did. He was came off out of a broken family. His father had left him. And the Jesuits came by and got him when he graduated from Holy Trinity, which was Jack Kennedy's church. It was an Irish neighborhood in those days. And they brought him down to Gonzaga. And uh, and uh, and so he, when he, he raised nine kids, and my mother was out of the Mon Valley. You know, you know these towns you saw that Trump was visiting, Manessa and Shalroy, Bell Vernon. I used to go up there after the war. My mom was one of eight kids, and four, all four of her younger brothers fought in the European theater of operations. And they were in the Mon Valley, and some of my cousins were telling my sister Bay, because they get together, that Bay, there's nothing up here in the Mon Valley but Trump signs. <laughs> and that's where Trump, that's where Trump won the election in Pennsylvania, out there. And take that corner, that south southwest corner of Pennsylvania, take the eastern part of Ohio. I've been up there, Weirton, that steel mill and everything in West Virginia. That's where he won the election. There's a quote in your book from Richard Nixon who says, I've never seen an extremist like you who has a sense of humor. Well, that's... <laughs> Something like, where did he, where did he say well, that? Well, I challenged, as you know, I challenged George H.W. Bush, came off Crossfire, a talk show, 10 weeks before the New Hampshire primary in 72, and I, my sister and I went up to challenge the President of the United States in the New Hampshire primary. And when we got up there, the polls showed Bush at about 65, 70%, Buchanan at 16, and David Duke at 6 in the polls. And so then we went through, we ran a really tough campaign against Bush up there, stayed up there constantly, and we'd close the gap from 50 or some points, or, and we closed it to the gap to 17 or 15 points. It was 51, 37, something like that. And it was a tremendous victory, a moral victory, and the press played it up huge. And we went to Georgia and did almost as well. But then we had Super Tuesday, and there was eight primaries on Super Tuesday, and I got wiped out in every single one. And so Nixon was in New Jersey, and I, so I'd lost 10 in a row. So I called Nixon in New Jersey, the president, and I said, Mr. President, 10 for 10, not bad, eh? <laughs> and he said, Buchanan, you are the only extremist I know with a sense of humor. And then he said, okay, come on up and bring Shelley and bring your Secret Service detail. So it was a very pleasant visit I had with him, uh, with the old man, and uh, that's, geez, that's 92, that was just two years before he, uh, before he died. You know, just before he died, I called him and in, in up in New Jersey, and I said, "Sir, we haven't talked." And he said, "Pat, I'm coming down to D.C." He would come down at the or the hotel was it was it on Washington Hotel? It's on that circle on under Dupont there. Circle. No, it's over over toward George. Oh, one Washington uh, Circle. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, right. exactly. And uh, he would come down there, and he was really so alert and everything. And you sit down just where you are, like, okay, this what what's he doing? What's he commenting about everybody? What's up? Who's up? Who's down? And uh, and it was like the first time I met him. You know, he was interested, so interested his whole life in politics and personalities and issues. He was consumed by this. And you know, I've thought of it from 60, January 66 when I met him till about the, the Oregon primary. I was a principal one in there for three, four, five hours a day in his office. In the White House, it became Haldeman and Ehrlichman. And then where they were going, it became Ziegler and Al Haig. 
But the old man almost needed to have that talking constantly, exploring this issue, that issue, what do you think, calling you back in. And, uh, and it's, but it, it's a feature I didn't, you know, my wife was with the uh, vice president when he was vice president. But Nixon. I don't, yeah, with Nixon was vice president, but I don't know whether Bob Finch, who was close to him then, was, was in there like that. But I've noticed that was a characteristic of him. But you're sitting across the desk from him. You say in the book you had a three-hour interview chat with him before he hired you back in 1966. Right. How old were you? I was 26. Uh, yeah, I just, it's November, December, I was just turned 27. What, what was that like? Well, it was. I mean, he it was. It's a, it was not a hard interview for me because he was asking me about issues. And you were doing what at the time? I was an editorial writer at the St. Louis Globe Democrat. I got a lucky break six weeks out of journalism school. I went back and applied for an opening there, and the editorial editor said, "Okay, you can write some editorials until the new we hire the replacement for the guy that left." And I was really working so hard, and that they kept me in, and they moved the other editorial out writer out. So it, we had two editorial writers at the Globe Democrat, the Post-Dispatch down the street at about six or seven. And so I was writing immediately on every issue, local, statewide, things I was unaware of, initially unaware of, foreign policy, domestic, everything. So, and I would been doing this for three and a half years and writing uh, other pieces as well. So when Nick, President Nixon would ask me about various things in this three-hour meeting, I mean, I was all set on it, you know, and, uh, and so I rolled it right off, <laughs> passed the oral exam with flying colors. And he said, after the three hours, he said, you know, I, I would like to hire you for one year. And he said, here's the reason. I want you to help write the column I've got to write once a month, get, rid of, get this mail, get that pile down, do some press work, do the other things right outside my office. And he said, one year, because I'm going to go out and campaign for all the Republicans in 66. And if we don't get back some of these massive losses we got in the Goldwater campaign, a nomination in 68 is not going to be worth anything. And so Nixon predicted we were going to win 40 seats in the House and six or some, whatever, the Senate. And the returns came in. We won 47 in the House. This was November 1966, and we were on our way to the White House. When did you see him in his angriest moment for you? Yeah. And how did he react when he was angry? Well, Nixon never, you know, he never yelled at me. He never yelled at me. If he got angry, he would <laughs> yell sort of generically at the wall or sort of, you know, I can, why can't I get some of these, get some people to do these things? I mean, but again, I can't recall him really and really enraged at me or just maybe I don't know why but in the book I don't think I have uh, recollections I don't have great recollections of him being enraged but I will say this it was different I, I worked for Reagan and I remember Reagan coming into the cabinet room and I don't know why he looked at me and he said that you know damn Tip O'Neill and exploded and I was at Reykjavik and he exploded after Reykjavik when he came out of that meeting with Gorbachev I was at the embassy. Nick Ruey, who was a friend of mine, I'm sure a friend of yours, was the ambassador. And Reagan came out. He was waving around human events, which had denounced the, the summit, I think. And he was just. But Reagan had this, what I consider a healthy temper, sort of exploded like this storm. And by the time we, we were coming home from Reykjavik on that plane at night, 
uh, Terry Dolan, um, uh, Tony Dolan and I, we were laughing and celebrating <laughs> the fact that we didn't get any deal at Reykjavik. And Reagan came back and he was in wonderful spirits, Pat, a year at the time when Jimmy Stewart and I and telling stories. But President Nixon kept it inside himself and he brooded. And I mean, when he would call you at night and he was angry at something, the voice was very, was low, I want you to do this, do this, do that, and go after them. And he'd let these things get to him in a way that I don't think President Reagan did. As I say, I think there's a certain healthy thing of, of sort of an anger and then getting it out of the system. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's the real difference between the two. During the Nixon administration at Watergate, uh, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, Jeb Magruder, Chuck Colson, they all went to prison. They Mitchell. testified. Dwight Chapin, mm -hmm. uh, you testified. I've got a little piece of uh, video right. from your testimony. You say that you had your brother sit behind you. Right. Why? My, my brother Crick. Well, I'd, I'd watched all the others up there, and they all had these lawyers sitting beside them. You know, and as soon as you say it, you say the guy's got a lawyer. He's got a problem. He must have done something. You got some lawyer advising him. And I didn't believe I'd done anything wrong, but I did need somebody, you know, just to be with you. So I called my brother Crick up on the day I was going to testify, or and I called him the day before. I said, "Can you come over to the Watergate where I live with Shelley, and we'll go to the White House and get breakfast, and then we're going to head up to the." that big committee hearing room where John F. Kennedy announced for president. Caucus famous, room. Yeah. And he came up and I said, I don't need you to sit at the table with me, but I want you to sit right behind me. And in the book, I think I've got a picture and it's got my brother right behind me there. And that's what he did. And, and when they would take a break, he would go back in this room with me and then we'd come back out to the hearing in and out. And so, uh, yeah, I just, uh, you wanted your brother there. I didn't need a lawyer. This video, I'm not sure it's your brother behind you in this video that we have, but let's run it and you can tell us if you know who this person is. The president had conducted an administration for four years that had won the confidence or support of millions of Democrats. The president's stand upon the issues of defense and welfare, upon taxes and government, upon coercive integration and busing, were closer to what the American people wanted than those of his opponents. But we won as well, Mr. Chairman, because of the quality and the character of our candidate. If one looks back over the political history of this country, there's only one other man other than Richard Nixon who has been his party's nominee for president or vice president five times. That is Franklin Roosevelt. In those days, you couldn't put a camera in front of you, so we couldn't see you right. frontally. That's not your brother. No, that's not my brother. There's a picture in the book of uh, my brother right behind me. You can see it sort of cut off about there, but he was right there. I could hear him laughing at times. <laughs> Did you ever think in this process that you would go to prison? No, I didn't. I'd never hired a lawyer. Uh, I went over to, as I told folks, you know, I've been to before grand juries. I was called over by the special prosecutor. I thought they were a vindictive, very hostile crowd. They tried to get you involved in the dirty tricks operations. They tried to, as Sam Dash did at that uh, hearing. And But I, to be honest, I thought Sam Dash just didn't understand politics. I mean, we had, had one, something, uh, phrases he was reading to me. He was appalled. I said, one of them was, an, it was Ed Muskie, and Nixon had told us we have to go after Muskie, and I agreed, and I had done this analysis. I said, it's time to go down to the kennels and let all the dogs loose on a college yet. <laughs> and so Dash reads this and says, can you explain this to me? 
And I said, look, Gary Hart said, if the Nixon people underestimate us, we'll do what we did to Humphrey, we'll kill him. And I said, I don't think he had physical violence in mind that the exaggerated metaphor is the staple of American politics. But, you know, it, it came off very well. I will say those five and a half hours I got back to, was it Nolan of the Boston, Boston Globe? Marty Nolan. Marty Nolan said when Buchanan got back to the EOB, it was like Orly Field after Lindbergh landed. <laughs> you know, it was a it was a great day in, in a way for because it boosted the morale of the of the whole White House staff, which was very down. And the good news was that the networks decided after I had testified for five hours, they're no longer carrying live testimony. Here you are on your way to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you'd stopped in Hawaii yet. You're on Air Force One with the president, and want to ask you eventually about the trip back. Let's watch this. Most interesting with the Chinese. Your comments before about Mao and Joe and uh, Al Rose anti memoirs were most interesting. You know? Yeah, and read the first part too. Uh, it's talk about uh, really the more interesting part is his evaluation of Miguel. It's uh, it's rather fascinating. That's well, great footage. <laughs> I, I don't recall your, ever seeing that. What was in your mind as you were making the trip? Well, it, I guess we were talking about a book about by Andre Malraux. Mm-hmm. I think we were, yeah. But I mean, what was your in your mind you know, as you were a, on that plane? Uh, well, I'd sent Nixon a memo telling him I thought it was taking a real risk taking this trip, and then I sent him a second memo saying, I think you have to take me along. It's my turn, and Buchanan is a conservative. I'm going to give you, I'll give you cover there because the conservatives look to me, sort of to represent their interests. As Bill Rusher said, Buchanan was, you know, the ambassador to the right or whatever it was for the conservative movement. But when I was going there, I was, I mean, the decision had been made. I mean, Nixon had announced it in July, and now we were in February before the New Hampshire primary. And it was going to be a tremendously interesting trip, and it was an important trip. And so by then, I was reconciled to the idea that, after all, they elected the president, not me. I thought it was risky. And so uh, we got there, and initially uh, I was doing fine with it until I read the um, communique. I, w- I had not been allowed to participate at all in the writing of the communique. I think Kissinger had done it. And when I saw it, and Rose Woods and I were appalled by it. Who was Rose Woods? Rose Woods was the most loyal Nixonite there was. She was with him from, she came with him right after the Hiss case in 1948. Had been with him when I was there. She, at 18 years, was almost, was family to the Nixons. A great lady, loyal, courageous, and uh, went through all those, every single one of those crises and then some with Richard Nixon. So you're on your way back from China. Well, on the way back from China, and so Kissinger had gotten word, I thought the the Shanghai communication was a sellout of Taiwan. And frankly, done was a, a you know, a shallow, shallow piece of work, concessions all through it. And it embarrassed me. It almost made me ashamed. So he came back to discuss it. He said, here's the, what's your problems with the communiques? I said, look here, Chinese open with a statement about revolution, what we want. And we start off with some examination of conscience. Let's, in, you know, I said the Japanese. They say Japan is militaristic. All and we don't defend our own ally and the part on Taiwan. We basically accept their position. And so I said, you know, it's a sellout. It was a badly written. You should have had me in there. I would like to have written it. I could have, you know, we could have stated our side. They state their side. And so then he went forward and he came back and he started 
Henry started ragging me, the conservative, you and your conservative friends, they haven't supported us in the Middle East, and we had. So I started answering, and then I just got up and just put my face about that far from his and yelled BS the, in the vernacular and sat down. If you can believe it, I looked over there, it was Brent Scowcroft grinning away. <laughs> Thumbs up. I think he enjoyed, I don't think, know that he agreed with me at all, but I think he enjoyed the encounter. Why did you say you were going to resign? That's why, because I felt that, you know, you know, I'd grown up feeling, being taught and learning that the worst disaster, the diplomatic disaster in American history was Yalta, where FDR had signed over basically the freedom of those 10 countries in Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union and Joe Stalin to their custody, and it was a horror show. And I'd always believed that. It was a horrendous betrayal. And I said to myself, look, if I've been party to something that's going to do the same thing to the people of Taiwan, whom we, we supported, Taiwan, we always supported their, our allies, Chiang Kai-shek and the, and the nationalists. And so I just felt ashamed and disgusted, and I decided to resign and um, told my parents when I got home and sent word to Florida, Key Biscayne, that I was wanted to come down and resign. And thankfully, uh, Haldeman argued against it, and Rosewood said, don't do it, and others said, don't do it. I think the president in there, according to Haldeman, uh, was quite prepared. Initially, he wanted to tell me not to do it, but finally he said, if he's going to go, he's going to go. I remember, and it reminded me of uh, my friend Dick Whalen, who walked out at uh, Mission Bay after the Nixon after Nixon's uh, uh, inauguration, or Nixon's nomination, Miami Beach in 68, and he was a great writer and a friend of mine. He walked out of Mission Bay and sent a, sent a, uh, a letter to the president. Shelley picked one up in Rose Woods, but resigning, and I ran to Nixon and says, this guy's such a great writer, we've got to get him back. Nixon said, if he's going to resign now, let him go. I mean, if that's the way he feels, let him go. Very cold about it that uh, better that he go now than that he go in the middle of the campaign and really have an explosion. So, so I think Nixon had come to the conclusion that if I wanted to go that badly, maybe you can, I can go over to the campaign or somewhere else, but I should go. Why didn't you go? You know, I decided by the weekend, I said, you know, I've made my case to the president, to Haldeman, to Kissinger, to everybody in the building knows what I believe and what I feel, and I want Nixon to be reelected, and so what am I going to accomplish by walking out? Because I'm not going to have a big you know, press conference or anything, I'm just going to slip out. And a friend of mine uh, did, uh, left the administration, Bill Gavin. He came to see me, he's the late Bill Gavin, wonderful guy, working for USIA, I think went over to, went over to work for Jim Buckley after that. This is from your book on page uh, 175. Henry lost it. Minutes later, Sally was back in my office. <laughs> Quote, I can't take this, she said. I just watched, watched Dr. Kissinger throw all the pages I gave him across the room, and there's a two-star general crawling around on the floor picking them up. Unquote. That's my secretary, Sally Brinkerhoff, <clears throat> currently Sally Hartwig. I just got an email from her and talking about all those days after she had read the book. What this was is that after the Cambodian speech and Cambodian Kent State, and the huge explosion that took place. Uh, we had, Nixon sent the troops into Cambodia for 60 days and 30 kilometers. And he wanted a paper, a long paper presented on what we had accomplished with that. And the NSC produced a paper of, I've guessed, some 6,000 words. 
So Nixon told me, uh, and Haldeman told me through Nixon, he wants you to rewrite it. And so I, and Henry, as was his custom, would hold off his material for long enough so that you couldn't rewrite it and get it in. So he held it off, and it was 6,000. It was given to me in the afternoon out in San Clemente. And Sally and I went to work on that, and I rewrote these 6,000 words all night long. And it was about 8 in the morning that I got them all done and sent them down. Sent Sally said, take it on down to Dr. Kissinger's office. And that's what she came back and told me. <laughs> Going right across the room. But the odd thing is, and Nixon, as Haldeman writes, he loved what the job I had done, putting, you know, these items up, bullet points of all the weapons captured from the North Vietnamese, their casualties, exactly how many rockets and borders, the ammunition, and really made the case, made the case with the documents and facts and information made it well instead of one of these long meandering things that you got out of the NSC. And Nixon said that was, I want all the papers done like in this form after this. And he thought it was terrific. So I felt very, very good about it after reading, uh, reading Haldeman's memoirs. <laughs> You've got lots of memoirs in here. <clears throat> At a couple of points I'm thinking, this is Patrick J. Buchanan's revenge. He's waited all these years to <laughs> publish all these memos to say, see, I was right back then. Well, you know, you, uh, were you always right? I mean, the, I was opposed to the, I was stunned by the, by the China trip. But all these things, there's a certain consistency. But you're right, I have held those for a long time in my files and everything. And, uh, and they really represent what I believe in. There's a thread of consistency, certainly on political strategy all the way up through. It worked. It worked. The idea of put the Goldwater people together with the Nixon, the Nixon center of the party and goodbye to Rockefeller and them. And then once you get this block, go after the Northern Catholics in the Democratic Party, folks that were raised just like me. And Nixon raised his Catholic vote from 22% and against Jack Kennedy to 55 in government. And then get this, what we call the Southern Protestants. They now call the evangelicals, or they denounced as a Southern strategy. All these natural allies of ours on politics, issues, the Southern conservatives, and put these four blocks together. And as I write, I mean, it's going to split the country a bit, but we're going to wind up with the larger half, which we did. I mean, can you imagine? And anybody thinking in 1962, after Nixon's last press conference, 10 years later, he would win a 49-state landslide? And, and, then, and then it all, um, it all came apart. We, as I said, we rolled the rock all the way up the mountain, and it rolled right back down on top of us. When did you first personally think there was a recording system? And when did you first learn about the recording system in the Oval Office and on the phones? Um, I didn't think, I don't believe I thought there was a recording system. I first learned about it when Butterfield, Alexander Butterfield testified. That was in July of 1973. He came up and testified that there was a recording system in the Oval Office. And I reflected on that and I knew the times that, you know, the president had called me and it late at night and, and he had had conversations where we were joking about various people and he was sort of letting his hair down and so I wrote him a memo saying um, I think you ought to the Dean had testified you're going to have to keep the Dean tapes the five tapes of conversations with Dean I didn't think they were that going to be that damaging to us 
and keep the tapes with Brezhnev and the foreign policy stuff, the stuff you need, you really should, should tape. And I said, take the rest out and burn it and shut down this special prosecutor's office now before this thing grows into a monster. And I didn't know it at the time, but Nixon, uh, Nixon had called in Haig and Fred Bazard and uh, entertained this idea that he should burn the tapes. And they said, well, it'll be obstruction of justice. First, they were, I didn't recommend burning subpoenaed tapes. Secondly, they're his property. There was executive privilege existed. Everybody knew it. And if he simply got rid of them as a fait accompli and just said, in effect, you know, impeach and be damned, I think he would have moved right through it. And President Nixon said in his memoirs, if he had burned the tapes, as I'd urged him to do, that he would have survived. And I think that's right. Here's some video from and Peter Jennings was a very young man at this time, anchor on uh, yeah. <clears throat> on ABC. Just a little bit back in May 9th, 1970, it's the buses circling the White House that you write about in your book. Let's watch this. Okay. They stream through every street of Washington heading south. Bumper-to-bumper -bumper buses served as silent sentries to guard the immediate area near the White House. The demonstrators kept coming through the morning. The intent was serious, the mood was peaceful, and the day was hot. Why the buses, and how many were there, and whose idea was it? Well, this is um, May 9th. This was the Cambodia Kent State speech, or Cambodia speech where I'd worked with the president on, where we invaded Cambodia. It was a tremendous shock to clean out the communist sanctuaries in Cambodia from which they were attacking Americans in South Vietnam. And there was an explosion on the campuses and there was riots. And out in Kent State, there was a riot in Kent on Saturday night. National Guard came out Sunday. They burned the ROTC building. Monday, there was a huge demonstration. And the Guard uh, fired live ammunition and killed four students. And that, that exploded the campuses in the country. And virtually, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of campuses that simply shut down. And this was early, uh, this was early May. And Nixon was tremendously shaken by this because he had made this statement that uh, a woman, he, Nixon had come out of the Pentagon after the day one, I think it was May 1, right after the speech. And a woman said it was either her son or husband, I want to thank you, Mr. President, for what you're doing to keep, you know, to help my husband stay alive over there. And Nixon said, they're great young people over there. You should see them. They're terrific. On the other hand, there are these bums blowing up campuses. And the free in the term bums, was taken by the press for Nixon to mean all the demonstrators and all the people that posed the war. And then the killing of the four students at Kent State, and this just exploded. And so the crowds were came into D.C., coming into D.C., and Nixon, Nixon uh, had a press conference there. I mean, he had a press conference Friday night, and then he went out that night. And I remember the phrase, searchlights on the lawn. Nixon was about 3 or 4 a.m., went out on the lawn with Manolo, his, uh, the man that worked for him up even up in New York, and he took him over to the, over to the uh, Lincoln Memorial, and there were students wandering around. Here comes the President of the United States at 4 or 5 in the morning, and Nixon tried to start a conversation with him. Uh, and, uh, and some of them said he was talking football. Others said, you know, they, and, he was, and so Nixon, Nixon sent around to his speechwriters a, a memo of, of what he tried to communicate, what he had tried to say. Uh, but that was the worst period. I call it the Gethsemane 
of, of, of the Nixon presidency before Watergate. He was really down and really broken. I've got memos in there from Pat Moynihan. I mean, to me, they were just semi-panic from Moynihan, you know, saying you got to take control of all the National Guard units in the country, your commander-in-chief, and put U.S. Army officers in charge and and doing all these things. And, and, and so, but there's no doubt of it, Nixon was affected by this, and the staff, many in the staff, I mean, Bill Sapphire denounced the speech in his memoirs, as did Henry Kissinger, although Haldeman says Kissinger had heard the speech and complimented the president before he delivered it. So I just tell that whole story, and I've got a line in there, which is, I'm not sure I believe it was that demonstration where I told him, I told somebody, I said, I went, I was on the first floor of the EOB, my office. <laughs> I said, I went down to get a pack of cigarettes and ran into the 82nd Airborne. But I went down there one day, there were all these kids down there, these paratroopers, they were sitting there looking around. And they're about, you know, I would say about 10 years younger than me. And I tell you, the demonstrators are lucky they didn't get through those buses and try to run into the White House. They would have, they would have gotten, uh, they would, they would have met, they would have met some real force. How many more books do you think you'll write? I don't, you know, I've, I've people have asked me to write another book. And, uh, you know, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly. When, once I got this done, I've thought of doing a slim book on, on with Reagan. I just don't. I think, you know, as a man said, I. I've said what I came to say. So you've done everything you wanted to do. Well, yeah, I'm. I'm you know, I feel I'm very fortunate <laughs> being around still. You know, you talked. You mentioned, by the way, in here that you had open heart surgery at one point. Sure, it was right after, uh, right after the California primary in nineteen, in nineteen ninety two. That's why guys said, "Why are you staying in the brace?" Because uh, the doctor told me I've got to go in for heart open heart surgery right after the primaries that you couldn't last. This was the surgery you had that uh, made me so nervous when I gave that, you know, culture war speech in the convention, whether I could really had the energy to do it. So, yeah. What was wrong with the heart? The heart valve was leaking badly, very, very badly, and it started to deteriorate. The doctor would describe it. He said, it'll get worse, 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 and suddenly it'll take a turn down like that, and you get, you get the valve in when it, just as it makes the turn. You mentioned Bill Sapphire earlier, and I want to show folks Bill Sapphire just talking about uh, writing mm -hmm. and uh, the New York Times hired him to be a columnist and I right. want you to put him in context with your brand of conservatism. Okay. He's like a, a layer cake uh, and uh, the top layer is a uh, patriot and beneath that there's uh, uh, mild paranoia uh, and uh, beneath that there's uh, very good uh, to people who work with him, uh, and, and thoughtful, and, uh, and and not at all abusive. And underneath that, uh, uh, a hard hardliner. I mean, he was a wordsmith and wrote mm -hmm. speeches, and then did his column in the New York Times. Where were the two of you on the political spectrum? Well, Bill Sapphire was regarded uh, when he came aboard. As, uh, but he had been with Nixon in 1960, and Nixon, when it was Bill, was one of the people, four or five people. When I went to New York, he said, "You got to go see Vic Lasky. You got to go see Bill Sapphire. Come down here, see Sandy Quinn, uh, Agnes Walter, and people who are really loyalists, who are considered people that he 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 talked to, and they ought to come to know me." Uh, my read on Sapphire was I, that he was basically a New York, New York liberal Republican, very comfortable with Rockefeller, Lindsay, and and Nixon. He had worked for Nixon, was loyal to him personally. He was a wordsmith, 
and a uh, writer, but he was on the other side for me in all the arguments, and whether it's busing and things like that. And I was go basically uh, very close to being a solid Goldwater conservative. And Ray Price and Sapphire were regarded as, I would say, moderate liberal, liberal Republicans. And uh, I remember when uh, Nick, Bill Sapphire was hired at the end of the, Nixon's first term, frankly, I think partly due to the Agnew speech, <laughs> all these liberal newspapers were all biased and overwhelming. And so the New York Times decided they needed a conservative, and so they hired, hired Bill Sapphire and Sulzberger, said, you know, we needed a conservative on the page. And so we put that, and it was in the news summary that Bill had been hired, and Nixon wrote a little note, Buchanan and Haldeman, Sapphire, a conservative? Somebody tell human events. <laughs> so we, we all had a great laugh at that. But Bill went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. But as a social conservative, no. Uh, on economics, he was, he, Bill was the one that worked on the speech, the, uh, the famous speech where wage and price controls all the things, you know, the big end of Bretton Woods going off the gold standard. He went up to, uh, he went up to campaign. He was a great opportunity and a, and a great moment. Here's a moment uh, that you also write about. Uh, this is at Pat Nixon's funeral in 1993. Uh, it's only about 20 seconds. He was really, he felt a tremendous sense of loss because he depended on Pat. She was a very strong woman and uh, she never did uh, leave him or, or turn her back on him in any of the controversial things he was involved in. She stuck with him and he leaned on her and depended on her. Uh, you worked closely with her mm. in 1966. Oh, she's a great lady. Mm. But what did you see in Pat Nixon that none of the rest of us saw? Because, and what did she do, the two of you were working together? Well, she was, uh, she was so down to earth. She called herself Miss Ryan, and she would answer the, and her name's Thelma Pat Ryan Nixon. So she was in the same little office with Rose Woods and me, and these people would call up. I remember one of them called up and said, I'd like to talk to Vice President Nixon. And she said, well, he's busy right now, I can't. And she said, I'm a personal friend of Pat Nixon. <laughs> and Pat would, Mrs. Nixon would tell us that, and she smoked. And I was a chain smoker then, and so when I ran out of cigarettes, he goes, Mrs. Nixon, you got a couple of Marlboros <laughs> so I can go get a book. But she was a wonderful lady. I think she was a very strong lady. Uh, she had a good sense of humor and uh, she was she was a she was a realist, and uh, and uh, you know I just liked her very much. And I remember after I testified, Watergate testimony came off so well, and the president said, "Come on over to the mansion." You know, right after I testified, about five or six o'clock or so, I was having a party in my office, and so I went over there, and she comes running up, and she waltzes me all around the room after I testified. But she was a uh, reserved. But she was a great lady. Julie's written a wonderful book about her, just a wonderful book about her. Uh, what did you think of the, <clears throat> the media coverage of her? And over your lifetime, when do you recognize that the media is being against somebody in politics? What's the, what's the giveaway? Um, or do you mean how was she treated? In yes. The, well, I think she was, I think it was simplistic and sort of plastic pat that she just stands there behind him and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't move and has the same, maintains the same posture or facial expression. And that wasn't her at all. When do, when do you discover that uh, the media, I mean, when Nixon, I went first went to work with Nixon. It was in 19, early 66. And as Sapphire says, 
regularly he would say the press is the enemy. Now remember that, you know. And of course, I've been going to journalism school. I worked at the Globe Democrat. Most of the, a lot of the reporters and others were, you know, liberals and moderates, and a few conservatives and things. And I just didn't believe they were the enemy. I knew Nixon had gotten a horrible press for years, but I think that even all of us—you take Ray Price, who was a. Uh, uh, it was with the Herald Tribune, and I think a lot of them came to believe they really had it in for Nixon. You know, they just, I mean, who's that intellectual? I've, I quote in there the fellow who said, you know, you cannot be an intellectual member of the intelligence in, in New York and have voted for Richard Nixon. You just cannot be that. I didn't understand it. He was a, I think he was a progressive Republican in domestic policy. He did run a populist, you know, small c, conservative campaign, law and order, things like that. But he was an internationalist, not a globalist. And in all of these things, they were not that different from Kennedy's positions, you know, Jack Kennedy's. And indeed, in some ways, Kennedy was more conservative, I think, in terms of, you know, stand, you know, bear any burden and all the rest of it. And yet there was just a hostility to Nixon that I have never seen before. And, uh, you know, and until we get to, to Trump. And of course, the President Trump is fights differently, where the president brooded. Trump just fights back daily. Got a piece of tape that I got to show you. We're close to the end of this. Sure. I don't know if you remember this. This is October the 24th, 1999. See if you remember this. Tomorrow, Pat Buchanan is announcing that he will be a candidate for the presidency on the Reform Party. I just think it's ridiculous. I mean, he wrote Why? a book because, look, he's a Hitler lover. I guess he's an anti-Semite. He doesn't like the blacks. He doesn't like the gays. I, 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 it's just incredible that anybody could embrace this guy. And maybe he'll get 4 or 5% of the vote, and it'll be a really staunch, right, wacko vote. I'm not even sure if it's right. It's just a wacko vote. And I just can't imagine that anybody can take him seriously. Uh, what do you think when you see that? Well, that's when, uh, when we announced. I thought we could beat Trump for the nomination, and I think we could. The Reform Party. Reform Party, and we got the nomination. But I look upon those with Trump, you found out those are really terms of endearment. <laughs> I mean, I look at that, and I do, I do laugh, but I will say this... Um, Reveal something that uh, a number of years ago, I got a call from uh, Donald Trump, and uh, he was very gracious and mentioned some things he had said way back there, and said he regretted and was very gracious about it, and uh, and uh, and so uh, you know, I, and I supported him almost 100 uh, percent. Supported a lot of his positions. Was elated that he came out with those positions. I voted for him in the Virginia primary. I voted for him in the general election. Uh, and so I hope the president's a success. Who, who, who's more honest in public, in the public light, Donald that's Trump the, or Pat that's Buchanan? The, that's what the nuns told me to, how to behave. What did you say? Who's more honest? Who's more honest? Pat Buchanan? I mean, when you said what you said, how mm -hmm. often were you not telling the truth? And how often is he not telling the truth? I don't think, I don't think Trump, I think Trump says what he believes and tweets what he believes. He believe you're a Hitler follower? Uh, no, I'd see, uh, I think he was, well, it's what he felt at the time. I think that was partly motivated by the fact that if he had designs on the Reform Party nomination, that he was out of the, out of the race, and it might, might have looked like, I don't, I don't know his motives, it might look like that I'd gotten in and he wasn't getting in. He called you a wacko. <laughs> Brian, I wish that was the worst thing I've been called. <laughs> 
But have you always, when you've taken points, I mean, uh, points of view and all that, have you always told the truth? In well, politics? No, in, well, no, and let's say this. Look, when I work for Richard Nixon, I'm an assistant to the president and Ronald Reagan. As I said, what you do is I argue for a policy inside, and once the president decides, you've got three choices. You go out and defend the policy the president stated, you keep your mouth shut, or you get out. Now, clearly, I would explain policies like, let me give it Nixon. I traveled with him to the Middle East 50 years ago, almost exactly at the time of the Six-Day War, and we went through Africa and everything, and he was a critic of Vietnam, of Johnson's policy. He defended it everywhere he was because he saw himself, I think, as almost an attorney for the governor, government of the United States, obligated to defend the policy and explain the policy. And it was really something to behold. And I think he felt good about that. He was great friends with Rusk, or a great admirer of Rusk. And so I think you, you I mean, I, look, let me say this. I don't go out, you don't go out and tell a lie. But you do say, here's why the president's doing this. Here's why he thinks the China trip is good. And you don't go out and say, geez, I think this is going to blow up in our face. <laughs> I mean, you, can't, you have to. There are certain obligations you got if you're, in, in effect, we're all attorneys for the man sitting there in the Oval Office, and we're given the best defense we can. I mean, I wrote the, I wrote the defense. I got it hanging on my wall, the famous Watergate defense. I think it was May 22nd, 1973. All these, and I argued all night with Bizarre and, and Hague. They're going in and out, and I said, "We can't. This doesn't sound right." But I got a note from Nixon, President Nixon, who was hanging on my wall. It says, "Al told me you are a great devil's advocate. Thanks for all you do above and beyond the call of duty. That's the job. That's it's a great job, Brian. It's not bad at all." <laughs> this book is called Nixon's White House Wars: The Battles That Made and Broke a President and Divided America Forever. Our guest has been Patrick J. Buchanan. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.